Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Donna Seaman, whose book is titled Identity Unknown, Rediscovering Seven American Women Artists, also the author of Writers on the Air, which is a collection of interviews that Donna Seaman conducted She also edited an anthology, In Our Nature, Stories of Wildness. And you're also the associate editor at Booklist. Is that correct? I'm now the adult books editor at Booklist. This, I guess, is a good place to start because some of the reviews, a lot of them have been focused on art, which is how you came to the subject. Do you have any background in art? I do, actually. My connection to art began at birth because my mother, Elaine Seaman, is an artist. I also did go to art school. I went to the Kansas City Art Institute. So I've spent some years in the studio and had a lot of the experiences with making art. And that kind of inspired me to write about women making art. Well, let's go back to your mother. What kind of art does she do? Does she do? Yes, my mother continues to work. She started out, it was a watercolor and sort of ink and drawing person, and then started working with a medium that's called scratchboard. But my mother turned it into a fine art. It's incised ink paintings, and they're very exquisitely detailed. She just had a retrospective exhibit at Vassar College's gallery. Coming into this, aside from whatever dealings you've had with sexism, your mother (laughs) must have encountered it in her career. Yes. I really grew up watching a woman artist struggle between commitment to home and traditional housewife, wife-mother duties, which my mother took very seriously, thankfully, but also being driven to make art and be an artist. I grew up in the Hudson Valley in a small city which had no very few outlets for art, so my mother also founded an artist co-op so that artists would have a place to show their works and also is a social activist. So art and life and community were all welded in my mind as I grew up. How did you wind up in Chicago? Well, that was really an accident. As I said, I grew up in New York State. I chose an art school that many people in New York thought was a really strange place to go, which was Kansas City, uh, which I thought I was going to Kansas, but of course it's in Missouri. But it was an excellent art school, and it had a fiber arts program before I got there, not after I got there. And that was a big interest of mine, which led me to choose one of the artists in my book, Lenore Tawney, who was a pioneer in fiber arts. After I finished school in Kansas City, I was heading back east, and you know how you're a poor new graduate from art school or college, you can't get very far. So I stopped in Chicago where I had friends and started working and went back to school and then never left. So eventually you became a reviewer and you got involved in radio and in books. What year did you start and what year did you stop the radio? The radio show, you know, that's a good question. My master's degree was in English. I found that much as I loved being in the studio and making art, my language skills were stronger and I was able to earn a living. I was a very 
avid book person, a huge reader from the start. So I always worked in bookstores or libraries, one or the other. And I thought uh, publishing would give me an opportunity to put together my interest in visual arts and reading and writing. So that brought me to the American Library Association, which publishes Booklist, which is the magazine where I've been working since 1990. And I started the radio show... I'm thinking maybe late 90s. I did it for about 10 years. And it was on a college station in Chicago and pro bono (laughs) endeavor. The station went belly up. That brings you back to doing the work you do, which is the reviewing, the print reviewing. And I guess somewhere along the line, you also created the anthology. Okay, so the anthology is finished. The radio show is finished. You're doing the reviews. At what point do you realize, hey, I'm going to write a book? Now, I understand that you love the profiles in The New Yorker. Was that where it began? You know, it's interesting when I think about it. I have been wanting to write. Of course, you know, anyone that loves books wants to write. And I've, as you say, did a great deal of writing, both at Booklist and, you know, when there used to be Sunday book sections in newspapers. Do we remember those days? Uh, I did a lot of freelance reviewing because I wanted to write longer forms. Booklist is the art of the, you know, concision. They're very short reviews, which is a great discipline, but I always have more to say. So I was writing longer reviews and, and started writing essays, which is a form I you know, dearly love. And yes, the New Yorker profiles were always in my mind. But it was really one of the artists in the book that got me to think about doing profiles of women artists. And that's probably the best-known artist in the book, Louise Nevelson. And watching her as a, a superstar in her lifetime, she died in 1988. And as I was working at Booklist in the 90s and reviewing a lot of art books and art history surveys, because Nevelson's work meant a great deal to me as an art student, I would look for her in these books, and she was never in them. And that was pretty shocking to me. It posed questions in my mind about uh, the fate of many artists who were forgotten, not just women artists. At what point did you go, okay, well, there's something here. I'm going to look for other artists. Did you have a number in mind? How did that come about? I did. I started, well, I wrote an essay about Louise Nevelson and was fortunate enough to have it published in a literary journal titled Triquarterly, which was at Northwestern University. Beautiful journal back then. It's still lovely, but it's online. Because the editor accepted it and it was published, I was very inspired to do more. So the second one I wrote, which uh, these have been modified, but they are in the book, was about a sculptor, Ree Morton, another sculptor, who said the opposite of uh, Louise Nevelson. You know, Nevelson was a late bloomer, um, made art right up to the end um, when she died. Ree Morton died very young and had a very short career because of that. And also she was a mother. She had three children. She started making art probably in her 30s. Her work's fascinating. And she, because she died so young, just in 1977, right around the time uh, some of the other artists, these are all 20th century artists, and uh, several of them died in the late 70s. There was a retrospective exhibit that I saw sometime in the 1980s. I've been going to galleries and museums since I was a little girl. And I never forgot that show. So I decided, well, here's another woman artist I can write about that people don't know about. So that was the second one. Then I thought, this could be a book. Well, what's interesting about those first two is that we think of art, we think mostly of painting, you know, whereas uh, Nevelson was a sculptor. She also did a lot of installations, as did Ray Martin. And so you're dealing with two artists who really don't focus on what the rest of us morons consider (laughs) art, which is painting. (laughs) 
So I guess when you decided to broaden it, there was the idea suddenly, well, wait a second, there are other women artists? And then you go, well, I better move to painting? How did that come about? <laughs> That's really interesting. No, no one's pointed that out to me. I was just fascinated by assemblage, and I myself was a sculpture major, you know, of course. And what made me decide to move to painters was really two things. One, I sort of became completely fascinated by the painters in this book as I came across them, again, accidentally on purpose, I guess you would say, in that I read constantly. So I read about Joan Brown, who's a Bay Area artist in the book. And because I haunt museums, I was in the Milwaukee Art Museum and saw a painting by Lois Milu Jones, became fascinated by her. I also, when I was compiling this list, and it's there was a much longer list than seven, but these profiles became very long. I originally was thinking about photographers and filmmakers as well, but one thing that really interested me was to focus on the tangible, to focus on art that's made with materials like wood and paint and canvas, because I spent most of my life now sitting in front of a computer screen, and I sort of feel that we're missing some of the tactile knowledge that you acquire when you're building things or painting things and, and getting dirty and having to deal with space other than a desktop. So I wanted to look back at those experiences, those more sensuous experiences. Eventually, you compiled this list, which I'm going to go through right here. Okay, so we start with Nevelson, which is actually a fairly short summary of her life. So many people do know somewhat about Nevelson. Each of these pieces, I will say also, was shaped very much about the work itself. Right. So in the Nevelson one, it's a very impressionistic response to her work and to, and to herself. And I spent a lot of time talking about how she herself became a work of art with her elaborate costumes and her infamous long false eyelashes and her turbans and her cigars. And the others dictated their stories in different ways. And Donna Seaman, it seemed to me that one connection between most of them, now Ray Morton is a little different, but the others, is that they all, in their own way, became their own works of art. <laughs> and I'm thinking specifically of Joan Brown, of course, as well as Lenore Torney, but all of them, and Abercrombie, Gertrude <gasps> Abercrombie, these women were all remarkable visually and in how they lived their lives. It's almost as if they understood branding without even thinking about them? Does that make sense? <laughs> it's so interesting. I, you know, I, I think it wasn't conscious on all their parts, although, you know, it's great that you mentioned both Gertrude Abercrombie, who's a Chicago painter and a real character, and Joan Brown, our Bay Area artist. Both were self-portraits. They painted themselves a lot, and they both said that they Pain, they created visual diaries. Now, Gertrude Abercrombie's are very spooky and eerie and highly symbolic, so they're sort of avatars. She always said that her figures were her only prettier because poor Gertrude had a real ugly duckling complex, thanks to her very beautiful opera singer mother. Joan Brown just painted herself. She it was quite radical in the 60s and 70s when she was doing a lot of those self-portraits to say that a woman's life was the subject of fine art. Why not? And she painted herself in all sorts of <laughs> attires, masks, and costumes. She was fascinated by ancient Egypt, so she would do her eye makeup very Cleopatra-like. And she was a, a performer in her life in many ways, very athletic. So she was an artist in everything she did and, and the way she moved through the world. Absolutely. One thing I noticed about all of them is that 
the locations they were in frequently intersected. And one thing you don't go into is whether they met. Now, it seems to me that Gertrude Abercrombie at one point, sounds like she would have met Lenore Tawney. You know, I wonder about that too, but I couldn't find any evidence. You know, Lenore Tawney was in Chicago for a while. Part of the time she was there, she had not started making art yet. Lenore Tony is so fascinating. She grew up in Ohio, came to Chicago because one of her brothers was working for the Chicago Cubs. And she got work as a proofreader, which showed her great attention to detail. And she met and married her husband, and he died kind of young. And it was while she was grieving that she came to art. So I don't know that she would have ever intersected, really, with Gertrude Abercrombie's South Side hangout so much. Well, what about Lois Nevelson, who hung out with the Warhol crowd, yes. and Joan Brown? <laughs> you know, Joan Brown came to New York. She had a New York gallery. But again, I, I mean, they may have. But... There's no indication that, well, Louise Nevelson was not terribly interested in other women artists. And Joan Brown um, was really a deeply California-rooted person. And then both she and Lenore Tawney and Lois Milo Jones, actually, those three were world travelers. So who knows? You know, they might have crossed paths. Well, also Nevelson and Jones also had appreciation for jazz. Yes, it's true. <laughs> it would seem that given all of that and given the fact that the pantheon of women artists, relatively small, particularly women artists making a living in the early days of second wave feminism and before, that they would have had to have known about each other. That I'm sure is true. I'm sure you're right that you know, the other six knew about Louise Nevelson, for instance. Right. And um, in New York, I'm sure Lenore, I'm positive Lenore Tony and Louise Nevelson crossed paths at some point. Louise Nevelson was very good friends with uh, Agnes Martin, who is one of the more famous women uh, painters. She was part of that group. So, you know, I'm sure there was people at openings and receptions and things like that, but there was no relationships among them. Did any of them focus more on the politics of feminism because I got the sense that their their focus, all of their focus was primarily on art and not on the fact that they were women or the fact that there was feminism even, even though they called themselves feminists. You're very right. They were so reluctant to have to deal with that kind of thing. You know, they they all, I mean, I kind of laughed to myself because, you know, here I am identifying them as women artists, and none of them wanted to be identified as women artists. They wanted to be simply artists like men were simply artists. But they're all very politically aware. And Joan Brown did talk very, she was a very straight shooter. She spoke very bluntly about women and encouraged women students to devote themselves to their art and to do everything to have, she loved being a mother. She has a son, had a son, who's also an artist. And she was very outspoken about that, that you should not be kept down, that you know you should always push back against that, any sense of sexism or limitation. Lois Milo Jones is a fascinating person because she had two obstacles to contend with because she was African-American and a woman. And she was very committed to the civil rights movement and you know, standing up for African-American culture. But there's also a deep well in Lois Milo Jones where she just wished she could just enjoy color. She was the finest colorist you could ever find, and she just wanted to paint. And yet she felt a deep sense of responsibility socially. 
Lenore Tawney was a profoundly spiritual person and was concerned about politics. She made some very beautiful woven pieces that she called shields that were a homage to Native American culture. That was a, a community she was very concerned about. Ramberg also was focused on the politics of the body. Yes, Christina Ramberg, another Chicago artist. Oh my gosh, yes. Some of her early paintings have definite S&M uh, looks to them, and she was very intrigued by— um, She was in Playboy. She was in Playboy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> she illustrated articles in Playboy. You know, Playboy published—I mean, amazing people have been in Playboy. All the great writers have been. And in fact, Christina Ramberg illustrated a story by Joyce Carol Oates, which was not a sexy story. It was a sad story. The art director in those years, in the 60s and 70s at Playboy, and this was in Chicago, was very connected to the art world there. There was a group of artists called the Harry Who and the Chicago Imagists. And Christina Ramberg was part of the second, but of course friends with the, the former— and uh, this guy, I think his name was Carrick Pope, would hire his friends, really, to do these illustrations. Playboy paid great, and it looked beautiful. The production values were... The guy who ran the Playboy Advisor was a gay man, wound up Harvey Milk speechwriter and an old friend of mine. Wow. So, yeah, Frank M. Robinson. So the entire world of Playboy internally was very different than the perception. Exactly. Yeah, editorially, there was a lot more going on there than what we think. When we're talking about books, for instance, certain books written by men seem to gravitate to men. Certain books written by women seem to gravitate to women. This doesn't mean that there aren't men writers who write books that gravitate toward women or vice versa. Does that happen in art, in, in the kind of tactile arts we're talking about? Well, that's a very good question. Perhaps, but maybe not as markedly as with writing. I mean, men paint women all the time. I mean, it's the classic subject of art. So who are those paintings for? Are they only for men? Women paint women and men, and, you know, men paint women and landscapes. You know, how do you decide if there's gender going on in those? It's a little different than language and story. Like Louise Nevelson's work, you wouldn't gender that. There are monumental constructions painted black of all sorts of shapes. And so I think in a way, not as much. Well, I know not in theater at all. In theater, I have not found that gender gap. I find it in books, yeah. but I don't find it in theater. That's interesting. Yeah, or filmmaking, probably or, not or as filmmaking, much. Or filmmaking, you, yeah. you don't find much you don't of find it. You find a little much. of it in filmmaking it. Yeah, a little. A little, but or, or in television, but not that much. But you do find it in books, as I'm sure you understood. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and it's a funny thing because, there, you know, there's this whole idea in the more commercial fiction of women's fiction where it's very definitely about relationships and women's lives and, you know, in no way to minimize those books. But there is there's a certain appeal factor. And, of course, you know, if you look at book jackets, you kind of get that feeling too. So, And, you know, that's a mixed thing. I read many, many, many male writers and absolutely adore their work and do not purposely set out to read women's books. But when I do, and they're excellent, I mean, excellence rises no matter what the category. So um, so there's an endless crossover. I've always found it really interesting to read books by men to try and understand what it is to be a man. <laughs> well, as a follow-up, Critics tend to be men, which brings in the entire area of how these seven women and other women who were working at the same time were dealt with by these mostly male critics. And that's a completely different area and not a good one for the women. <laughs> no. And in fact, 
when I think about, I mean, each of these seven women artists, like many others, um, did attain recognition. I mean, they had success, as, as you mentioned earlier, but they were not included in the art history record, which has, was very much written by men for a long time, not so much anymore. And in fact, there's been some tremendous women art critics, Linda Nochlin and Dora Ashton and Barbara Rose. It's been balancing out slowly. But initially, certainly in the early part of modernism, it was all male critics. And most of the art history books were also written by men, sometimes the same men. And I really did feel that Louise Nevelson, for instance, was overlooked because of that. And because she is an amazingly influential figure that should not have been left out of the art surveys I was looking at in the 1990s, not even a decade after her death. Edward Albee wrote a play about his. They were very close friends, Louise Nevelson and Edward Albee, and he knew right away that she was going to be forgotten. And he wrote a play called Occupant, in which Nevelson is confronted in the afterlife by a man who tells her she's already been forgotten. And it's just heartbreaking. History is always told by the victors, as they say, and the women were really written out of it. There's another element, too, which may come into play with all of these women, which we have to account, which is after a writer or any artist dies, there's usually a good 10 or 15 years where they do vanish and then they come back. And we've seen it over and over with a number of great artists now, yes. writers, people like that. So there, there is that, too. There is. Richard, it's so interesting. I mean, it took me years to work on this book. Research has changed so much since I was in school, of course. You know, there's so many collections digitized now and so much more writing online. And I would find, like I was writing about Joan Brown, and I would go online to look for something, and there'd be something new coming up. And I'm like, I realized I was not the only person that was sitting in some room somewhere going, where's Joan Brown? We need Joan Brown. Let's bring Joan Brown's paintings back. Uh, curators were thinking about Lenore Tawney fiber art, which had been forgotten, just, you know, kind of faded away. Suddenly there's group shows being put together about fiber art. There's a new traveling exhibit about women abstract expressionist painters. There's these cycles. And I feel that, you know, an artist like Christina Ramberg, too, you know, I started seeing in Europe that people were including her in group shows, uh, different themes. So that, you know, there works so powerful, it is going to come back, definitely. Art also has styles, and serious, quote, unquote, music goes the same way. The styles of art, if you try to do any kind of art outside the current accepted fashion, nobody wants to look at your stuff. What the hell is that about? Oh, you know, I mean, I, I love visual art. It's a huge part of my life, but I have found the official art world to be very much a fortress and very sternly guarded and closed, which is the exact opposite of what you expect. And I'm sure there's many explanations for that. But each of these artists, of course, really went against that grain. Um, you know, again, I'm thinking about Joan Brown, who started out painting these really juicy, thickly expressionistic oil paintings. Many of them were abstract or they were barely representational. And she went through a personal metamorphosis and started working on masonite with house paint and painting paintings that were completely flat, very crisply figurative. And, and critics followed her to a point. And then when her self-portraits began to show other aspects of her life, like her spiritual interests and her different marriages, she fell out of fashion. I mean, that was not what you were supposed to be doing in those years. And she was just lambasted for that and persisted because she was following her own path. But I know that's part of what happened with Joan Brown is that people stopped. They just wouldn't even look, as you say. The odd thing, of course, is that at the same time with art, you're supposed to follow <laughs> your own path. But if you follow your own path, 
Nobody wants to look if you're not part of the style of the day, and then you have to wait, or maybe you'll die, and then yes, it'll come sadly, back. Sadly, I'm it's thinking very... of Gertrude Abercrombie and Christine Ramberg. I mean, a lot of the story of American art is set in New York City, of course. You know, that's inevitable. But it's a really big country, and there was lots of art being made all over the place. And what I always found fascinating was that while abstract expressionism was ruling in the mid-20th century in New York City, and, and you know, that's what everyone talks about and looked at, there were these rebel groups out west, like there were the imagists in Chicago that were doing figurative art, and then there was the Bay Area figurative painters. Uh, that's right now in San Francisco and MoMA, there's uh, Richard Diebenkorn and the Matisse show. And Diebenkorn and Elmer Bischoff, who was Joan Brown's mentor, all kind of rediscovered figurative painting at the height of the abstract expressionist movement. And so those of us that grew up in New York and looked to New York never even heard of these painters. And when you discover them, you're like, oh, these are powerful and every bit as interesting. Donna Seaman, there are some pictures in the book, but a lot are missing. If I were to name these people, what museums or galleries, let's say, around the country would focus in on them? So, for instance, if you wanted to see Nevelson, pretty sure you could see it at the Whitney or SF MoMA. Nevelson's work comes and goes. MoMA in New York has it. Hershon in Washington, D.C. has some beautiful pieces. You know, I kind of traveled around looking for for her. That's Seattle Art Museum has some pieces. She's national. Gertrude Abercrombie. Oh, Gertrude's very difficult to find. The Art Institute of Chicago currently has a great self-portrait hanging out. Some small university libraries and museums in the Midwest have some Abercrombies. They're hard to find. They're in private collections. Lois Milou Jones. Oh, yes. Lois Milou Jones, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, National Portrait Gallery, because she was at Howard University for many years. I think she taught there for four decades. Milwaukee Art Museum, where I first saw her. And, and uh, I don't know, a lot of private collections. University museums have collected these artists more than the more well-known And Jones's. Uh, there's one picture from Haiti, and they're beautiful. Oh, yes. uh, are, are any of those on the exhibit that you know? You know, uh, there's a great website the Lois Milou Jones Trust set up. There's a lot of images on there, and they will list some of the collections. The, the Mint Collection, which is in North Carolina, has some. Smaller museums have them. Lois Milou Jones lived in Haiti. She married an artist from Haiti. She traveled all over Africa, and you see those influences in her work. Ray Morton, one problem I have is that installations you have to see, and these are installations. Where would you see those? Those appear every so often. I don't know. There's some permanent collections in Europe that own her work. She also did some paintings and prints that you can see. I don't know if any are actually on display right now. They show up in traveling exhibits once in a while. Joan Brown? So I was looking for Joan Brown today because I was in San Francisco, and they were not hanging. Someone had emailed me or taken a cell phone photo of herself standing next to a Joan Brown. It's already back in storage, and that was only a month or so ago. But Palm Springs Museum has two. They've contacted me, and those are on display there. I've actually seen Joan Brown's work in a Vassar College uh, museum, so they're but, around. But not, say, MoMA or the Whitney in New York? I don't think so. Christina Ramberg's in the Whitney and in, okay. MoMA, and in the Art Institute of Chicago. The um, collages and tapestries of Lenore Tawney? Those show up in different exhibits, although they're hard to see. Um, the Art Institute of Chicago owns some of her work, but it's not been on display in a long time. The um, Museum of Art and Design in New York has some of her work, and I believe it's exhibited. One problem I have 
with installations is I actually don't get them. <laughs> you know, I mean, does, does that make sense? I mean, I walk oh, yeah. past and I'm going, what is this? And then I look and see what the artist is doing and I can make the connection. But a part of me is always thinking, you know, I shouldn't have to read what the artist says to appreciate the work. What am I missing? I completely agree with that. I think that you should be able to look at visual art and just look at it. I mean, I'm curious to forego reading about it, but I like to look at it first. And I'm a little resistant to installations, too. They seem, you know, they're sort of theatrical in a way that I'm not always welcoming or open to. But I'm often won over because of the awareness of space. Uh, Ree Morton's a really good example, of course, Nevelson, too. But Morton was really playing with the idea of, you know, that third wall where, you know, like in film sometimes when people will address the camera. So it's like calling your attention to the fact that this is artifice, that this is a tableau that she's creating and that she wants to include you in it to, to make you a little uncomfortable, I think, and to challenge your idea of art as something precious that should be on a wall or in a case. Like Nevelson, Ree Morton made a lot of her installations out of found objects and twigs and, you know, just funky little stuff. She also made a piece I really love where she created these sort of lopsided, funny little pedestals that have no art on them. So she's kind of saying, well, what makes art precious and what makes an ordinary item if you put it in a museum? And it's almost like going back to Duchamp. Is it now something more than it was when it was in my garage? How does this work? So it's a little bit of a mind game going on, but also always powerfully visual. And if you just stop thinking about it and just look at it and let your body respond, you really can pick up on the more subtle aspects of it. In New York at present time, there's a bit of a controversy about a bull in Wall Street and a little girl facing the bull. (laughs) Uh, What happened is that the bull was created by an artist and was placed somewhere or other. It was moved to Wall Street to symbolize, I guess, the power of Wall Street or something. The bull market. The bull market. And um, there was a second sculpture of a girl What happened was supposed to be temporary. It was placed facing the bull, which changes the meaning of the bull and what becomes a statement that is either neutral or pro-capitalism becomes anti-capitalism and also perhaps feminist. And the original artist objected to this on the grounds that his work was being distorted. What Donna Seaman is your perspective. <laughs> I've seen photos of that and, and thought about it a lot. There is a piece in public square. And so do can you control the space around your sculpture? I'm not sure the legality of that. I haven't looked into this. But it certainly changes the dynamic to have a cute little girl standing there, either endangered, although my feeling, and maybe this is the feminist in me, was that she was almost going to stop the bull, that she was perhaps more powerful than this bull. So I understand why that artist is upset. And in some ways, it sort of trivializes his work You know, there's almost something cute about it now, which he certainly did not mean, or a commentary, as as you were suggesting. I just don't know what the rights are about how much you can object to that. Well, putting aside the rights, because it isn't a public place, I mean, you could put the girl on the side of the bull, for example, or across the street from the bull, and it no longer interferes with the meaning of the bull. And we're not going to talk about what you and I probably think of the meaning of the bull. (laughs) But the question does arise. It's not the same as putting Andy Warhol's Marilyn Monroe next to the Mona Lisa. That doesn't change the Mona Lisa or Marilyn. That's right. In this case, the actual installation 
because it is spatial, is change. Oh, absolutely. F- for better or worse. Right. No, I agree with you. I mean, if and if I were him, I would be arguing for that strongly. I would right. be objecting completely. Yeah. It really does change it, and it, it turns it into a whole other work of art, absolutely. Have any of these artists, the visual tactile artists, talked about the placement of their own installations? Joan Brown uh, had a lot of experience with galleries. She painted enormous canvases, and, you know, galleries want to be able to sell work. So part of those issues were uh, proportionate in a show, the enormous pieces. She and Nevelson also did large outdoor sculptures, which they loved doing. And Joan Brown did it as a sense of mission to bring art to the people. It was a big concern of hers in her final years. And uh, Louise Nevelson loved working with metals, with corten steel and aluminum. And she'd go to the fabrication shops with all the guys and strut around with her cigarellos and boss men around and have them create these beautifully graceful kind of gravity-defying works. So I think they were very much wanted to control space and, and to have access to really dramatic space. Would they have objected? One of Nevelson's pieces was destroyed on 9-11. Right. You know, and that was in the World Trade Center. She was willing to do that. So she could have created the bull. So the question is, what would she have thought? You know, I'm picturing some of her outdoor sculptures. There's a, um, a beautiful sculpture park called Storm King in New York State. And there it is. And it's in an area where kids play and people leave their strollers out and all that. I don't think she would have minded at all. I don't think she would have cared. <laughs> Donna Seaman, you mentioned before there were a whole bunch of artists that you would have included. Who? I ran into an uh, interesting situation where some artists I was interested in, especially artists of color, I could not find enough information to write about them. And that was heartbreaking to me because it indicated how that was another level of being ignored, um, that there was no reviews. That there, you know, there has, had to be something for me to work with. So there was a list that I haven't totally given up on of artists. And going back a little farther than some of these, that I, especially like in the South and in Texas, and you know, I was looking for sort of Mexican border artists, there's just not enough written anywhere that I could find. That really told me a lot about success among women, and that still certain women were more privileged than others. One of the people I will write about someday is Maya Duran, who was a, a early filmmaker, an experimental filmmaker, whose life is just fascinating. She, like Lois Milo Jones, was involved with Haiti, too, so there's some connections between them. I'm thinking maybe some standalone pieces about some of the artists, and I, there's some of the artists I really couldn't find material out. I'm hoping that as more and more digital sources appear, then I might be able to find more traces. Is there anybody who was completely unknown who you uncovered and still haven't found information on who just blew you away? (laughs) There was a – what was her name? There was a printmaker I found some – I poke around and use bookstores and places like that, and I found a very small monograph about an artist. I'm trying to remember. I think her name was Rose Hartman. And she, I wasn't totally blown away by her work, but I was very intrigued by her work. It was figurative, uh, lithographs of figures and animals, and uh, they just had a certain, they were unusual in their combination of styles. And I was curious about her. I know she lived in Woodstock for a while, but I haven't found out much more. If you could find someone, what style of art that you like if you could find enough information, you'd want to put in a book like this? Oh, I'm very open to style or approach. I mean, it, I like expressive, strong work. I like to be surprised by work. But I'm very open to medium or 
I mean, I love abstract expressionism, but I'm also, you know, obviously love figurative art as well. And both sculpture and painting speak to me. I love prints and, and photography too. So I, it really, it's more just the spirit of the work. Donna Seaman, uh, you still do your reviews over Booklist. Are there any books coming out, fiction, nonfiction, say next fall, that we should keep our eye on? Arun Hati Roy, who wrote It's been 20 years since The God of Small Things came out and just really wowed people. That book continues to be read and even taught. She's written five nonfiction books in between. She's an Indian writer and and a social activist, very concerned about environmental matters and other forms of injustice. So we've been waiting a long time for her next novel, and it's just a powerful, another masterpiece. I believe it's called The Ministry of True Happiness, and I think it's out in September. Another writer who pops into my head at the moment is Gail Godwin, who's a really strong novelist. Her last novel was titled Flora, which I I really liked. This one is called Grief Cottage, and it's set on the Carolina coast, and it's about a young boy who's orphaned um, and goes to live with his great aunt who he had never met before, who's a painter, so you can see why this might appeal to me. Uh, and it's, it's a story about trauma and, and expression. It's a beautiful novel. Donald Seaman, have you given thought to your next book? I have indeed. I feel very wed to the profile form. Another area I read deeply in is environmental matters. And I'm, I'm this is a very early thought about art and environmentalism and, and our interpretation that, that my first book was about fiction that helps us see how we imagine ourselves in nature or not. So I'm interested in art that may be addressed, you know, in the in the modern era, in the nuclear age and beyond, our connection to art and, and to nature expressed visually. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.